0: Matthew chapter 8 We have a short passage tonight. Short at least in the reading. Not comparably short in the preaching. I hope you brought your jammies. No, I wouldn't trick you that way. I would I would put in the bulletin that it's jammy night before I would put you in that Matthew chapter 8, we will be reading verses 14 through 17. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, here we come, O Lord, again, seeking bounty, seeking more than we deserve. Father, it is true of us That we have thick ears, hard hearts, weak flesh. So many things about us are arranged in a kind of opposition against hearing the voice of the Master. Gracious God, come and help us, we pray, even now. Help us not according to the measure of our preparation. Not according to the measure of our eagerness or hunger, but help us, O Lord, according to the measure of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, to the measure of his high priestly intercessions, which are full of mercy and peace and wisdom and love toward us. O Lord, help us hear, help us believe, help us obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is God's word. In tonight's reading, we follow our Lord into a very ordinary domestic situation that quickly turns into a dramatic situation of exorcisms, and miraculous healing. The ordinary afternoon that is the setting for this event starts with our Lord coming home with Peter. He enters into Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum. This is also the house where Andrew lives, a fact which we learn from Mark 1.29. And it is not just Andrew and Peter and Jesus who come into the house, James and John also enter, we learn from the other Gospels. Now, for many reasons, we can safely assume this was a Saturday afternoon, a Jewish Sabbath. The reasons for this conclusion we take from Luke and from Mark, who both report the same event. Mark in chapter 1, verse 29 through 31 of his Gospel. Luke in chapter 4, verse 38 through 41 of his But we also have in our text here in Matthew, we have it indirectly confirmed that this is the Sabbath, because it says in verse 16 that the crowds did not show up until that evening, which would have been the time Sabbath ended for the ancient Jew. And then it was a fitting time to travel again, and so they did. Now, we should notice right off that this whole report confirms for us that Peter indeed had a wife. And to be a little cheeky, it's very tempting at times to title sermons based on this text. Can the Pope have a wife? Does not the scripture confirm it right here in front of our eyes? Peter had a wife. Whether she was living or not at the time of this healing is immaterial to the truth of the matter. Peter, like many other men of his day, was bound to the lawful duties and relations of marriage, which means, beloved, that marriage is no hindrance to gospel ministry. Peter did not need to become unmarried before he became holy enough to serve Christ as an apostle. In fact, the apostle Paul brings up Peter's wife in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas being Peter. That's 1 Corinthians 9.5. So here's a very simple lesson so far. Neither a wife nor a (laughs) mother-in-law, neither is an obstacle to the calling of Christ on anyone's life. R.T. France explains this very well in his commentary when he says, The fact that Peter has a home and family in Capernaum places an important caveat against a too radical understanding of the renunciation involved in following Jesus. Simon and Andrew left their nets, but not their home, not their family, close quote. So we should always be cautious about any so-called Christian te- teaching that forbids marriage. Paul tells Timothy that such teaching is demonic, and it is against the doctrine of creation. That's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now, before we go any further into this text, let's, let's even take another lesson from this domestic setting. A bigger category that is at work in this household scene is the category of vocation. I'm not sure if you've heard this word before. I hope you hear it often. Vocation literally means one's calling. But it's your calling from God to serve him in many places and institutions of the world. Vocation is not just your money-earning career, marriage and family is a vocation. Marriage and family is a fundamental estate of human life instituted by God for the good of creation. The family is a divinely arranged arena where much of God's work is done. Let us never forget it. You may be someone's daughter or you may be someone's son. Those are your vocations. You may be someone's sister or you may be someone's brother. Those are your vocations. You may be someone's husband or wife. Those are your vocations. A parent, a child, an aunt, an uncle, a nephew, a niece. All of those are vocations, which literally means they are all callings from God into the service of God. Now the point of the lesson then is this. Your appointed place to serve God is not always outside the family vocation. Peter's mother-in-law is going to finish out the scene serving. She enters into her vocation. You can almost imagine somebody putting a microphone in front of her. You've been healed by... The eternal son of God, what are you going to do next? I'm going back to my vocation. I'm not fleeing from it. That is why I've been healed. I render my service to the Lord in this small space called the home. He receives it from me from this small space. Peter would certainly have learned from Jesus on this very day that his own mother-in-law was a serious concern of the kingdom of God. Centurions, who we saw last week, centurions seem like important public people, don't they? But now Jesus is standing over Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know what Peter's relationship was to his mother-in-law, but this incident surely softened his heart toward her even more. If his master will heal her, how could Peter be cold towards any of her afflictions? Even if Peter could never heal her himself, he learned on this day the Lord's regard and love for his mother in law. Now I want to get back to verse 14. In verse 14, Matthew has done something quite interesting, I think, in the way he has arranged his material. Not all the gospel writers arrange their material in the same way, even though they often are reporting on the same events. Matthew's arranged it in a very interesting way. In our passage, Jesus enters a house after just being told not to enter a house in the previous passage. The centurion did not want Jesus to come into his house because the centurion was not worthy of Jesus, remember? But then in the very next passage, tonight's passage, our Lord is entering a Jewish house. Is Matthew trying to tell us the Jews are worthy, but the Gentiles are not? Not at all. Because in the Jewish house, Jesus enters... There is a serious fever at work. Death is at work in the Jewish house, too. It seems to me that Matthew wants to prevent us from making an error in our thinking about that Gentile centurion. To keep us from thinking, oh, of course, only Gentiles have a bad sickness in their house. They deserve it. Well, here Matthew puts a Jewish mother's sickness in the next paragraph. And not just any Jewish mother. It is one related to a disciple of Jesus' inner circle. The point? Sin and sickness afflict all. Not just outsider Gentiles, but insider Jews. And this is where we have to remember our Jewish and Gentile biblical theology. The Jews were not more acceptable to God because they were Jews. Having the patriarchs, having the law, having the prophets, having the temple, having the priesthood, having the circumcision, having the promises, having by Ordinary generation, the descendant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, having all of that, those things did not make the Jews more acceptable to God than the Gentiles. Listen to what it says in Romans 2, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. We are seeing that very truth of Romans 2, 9 and 10, on display in Peter's house, right after the centurion. The sickness of sin's curse is not just in the strange Gentile house we never enter, The sickness of sin's curse is in the familiar house of Peter's mother-in-law. Now let's look at verse 15. Here we see the Lord's chosen method of healing Peter's mother-in-law. Quite different from how he healed the centurion's very sick servant. The centurion's servant was healed completely and immediately, but... From a distance, Jesus never goes to where the body of the sick servant is. Well, instead of keeping his distance here, Jesus draws near to the mother-in-law. Literally, he draws near to her in the house, Luke 4 tells us. He touches her on the hand and immediately heals her. And Mark tells us that he then helps her up from her bed or her couch. Luke even adds this little nugget of information. Jesus rebuked the fever. Luke 4.39. Same Greek term he uses in his exorcisms when he rebukes unclean spirits. A rebuke in this case is something happening in the context of a display of authority. Let me draw three quick lessons from verse 15. Number one, Jesus is indeed demonstrating here divine authority, creator-level authority is being demonstrated here over all the sicknesses and over all the diseases that afflict our bodies. There is no disease that can remain active in service of death when Jesus has decided to put an end to it. No principle of biology, no principle of spiritual power can withstand the authority of Jesus Christ. Every power at work in all creation yields to his will. Jesus is Lord. When he says, come out, a dead body, that goes by the name Lazarus, comes out. When he will say it the last day, when he publicly manifests his exaltation on the day of judgment, when he says, rise from the dead, and all the wicked and the righteous are raised at the command of his voice, there will be no principle of biology, no principle of spiritual power, that will be able to withstand that word of authority. He is demonstrating that in miniature on this day so that you would run over to him from wherever you were and get right up behind him and make him your Lord. Every power at work in all creation yields to his will. That's the first little lesson from verse 15. the second is this Jesus touches peter's mother-in-law he touches her hand because he comes to give us not just his power but his love if this was just a wanting to demonstrate power he would have healed everyone from a distance well i'm I'm kind of out here in the kitchen sitting down who's sick well. That's comic. That's a caricature of divine power. This is true revelation of divine power. Jesus comes to where she is, touches her hand, because he's not just giving her his power. He's giving her his love. If we failed to see this in the Incarnation when he came and touched our humanity by taking it upon himself? If we fail to see it then, then we are to be helped by seeing it right here in miniature, that he touches our humanity to, yes, legally redeem us by assuming all that was meant to be redeemed, but also to affectionately redeem us. Jesus is revealing, in verse 15, the tenderness of heart he has for our flesh. Verse 15 of this text is perfectly explained by Paul in Ephesians 5.29. Now, I hope you do what I'm doing right now. I hope you let other scripture... Exposit other scripture. We call it the analogy of faith. It's really letting scripture interpret scripture, letting scripture exposit scripture. Listen to how Ephesians five, 5 twenty nine becomes a perfect and glorious exposition of chapter eight verse fifteen. Ephesians five twenty nine says, "For no one ever hated his own flesh." but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, if you know that passage, you know that Paul's talking about marriage. But he actually says, quite surprisingly, that he's not just talking about marriage. He's talking about Christ and the church. And Peter's mother-in-law is to be reckoned in the covenant community the Ecclesia of God. And Christ is caring for, nourishing and cherishing his own body. Hebrews 4.15 also says, in Jesus we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The KJV translates it. Why does the Lord speak to us about himself this way? so that our hearts would melt before him, so that our hardened, brittle, kind of hurried, mechanistic way through life would be stopped, and that adoration and affection would be strengthened by the word, these very verses, and the spirit who touches us truly. Last lesson from verse 15 before we go on, a third lesson. It says in it says in verse 15 that upon being healed, Peter's mother-in-law rose and began to serve Jesus. Why is this here? Why is the Spirit of God in the super attending of Matthew including this detail? Well, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Jesus has just served her. And she rises in the strength he has provided. And with gratitude, she begins to serve him. It is a perfect picture of our salvation. Jesus first gives us everything we need to come out of death into life, out of guilt into pardon, out of condemnation into justification, and then having received all which Christ provides we rise and with gratitude begin to serve him with his own, with the strength he's given us. That's the picture of salvation in miniature. We serve not to earn his provisions. We serve because his provisions have already been freely given to us without our deserving. That is what we see being pictured in Peter's mother-in-law. And it's quite interesting to me that Peter's mother-in-law, what, well, it's quite interesting what she does not do She does not rise and go write a book about being healed. She does not rise and go arrange radio interviews about being healed. She does not rise and go make a name for herself. She does not rise to become a sensation. She rises to serve. To serve Jesus when she can, where she can, and with what she can. We heard it this morning in the Offertory, Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. She does that. She doesn't know she'll be well next week. She's well Saturday night, and she serves. Beloved, are you well? Is your back straight enough to carry the meat on your bones through the streets and through the house and through the yard and through the city and through the mall? Are you well enough? Why are you well then? Who has made you well? Why are your lungs working as well as they are? Why are your ears working? Is some other biological principle given that to you? Or has Christ given that to you? If you are well, what are you doing with your wellness? Are you returning it to the Lord? Are you rendering service to him? Well, do do I have to leave my family to do that? No. You have vocations where the Lord has given you much health to serve him with wonderful works, foreordained for you before the beginning of time. Now verse 16. 16 marks a shift in the activities of the evening, quite a shift. Peter's mother-in-law falls out of the scene in Matthew's writing, and it says at verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Well, let's do it again. A few lessons to take away from this text. Let's first dwell on that little phrase, with a word. With a word. How did he cast out? How did he heal? With a word. It's the exact same Greek construction used in the previous event with the centurion. Remember, the centurion said, no, no, don't come to my house. Just speak a word. It's the exact same Greek construction now. He cast them out with a word. It's authority again. Divine authority in the divine son, the true Messiah of God. It's a wonderfully simple thing, isn't it? This authority. Jesus rules over all powers with a word. Not with a bunch of fire and smoke and loud bangs and booms, but with a command. The higher the authority, the more simple its execution. Such is the authority of God. When you see that phrase, with a word, Think of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Do you remember the contest? On one side, you have 450 prophets of Baal. On the other side, you have one prophet named Elijah. The contest was to have the true God revealed from heaven. Elijah would go second. The 450 prophets would go first. They would arrange an altar and they would call on their God, and if he poured fire down from heaven upon the altar and consumed that which was on it, he would be revealed as the true God. Prophets of Baal begin. There are a lot of words. Not just one word, but a lot of words. For hours, the prophets of Baal call on their God. By noon... Nothing has happened, and Elijah decides it's time to publicly mock the prophets of Baal. Elijah begins to say, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, meaning he's gone to the bathroom, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep, and he needs to be awakened. Well, nothing happens. And so now the prophets of Baal start cutting themselves and the text says that blood is gushing out on each other. I don't know how many of them cut themselves, but if it, was, if it was all of them, can you imagine the bloody, horrific scene of 450 prophets of Baal walking around, chanting, calling out on a god who is no god at all, and they're all covered with their own blood? What service Satan requires of his servants? Well, finally, it's Elijah's turn. Elijah's, Elijah says a prayer that is probably shorter than any prayer I've ever prayed in this pulpit. It takes two verses to report it to you. He prays a short prayer. Fire comes down from heaven, not only consumes what's on the altar, but it consumes the altar itself. And the people cry out, the Lord is God. Beloved, that same demonstration is what verse 16 is about. Jesus is demonstrating that The God of Elijah is on the earth and he's making no prayers. He's calling on no intermediary. He is commanding because he is God. Jesus is revealing his divine authority. Our Lord Jesus wants those he heals in verse 16 to recognize his authority not just experiencing something experience something good in their body that's why there is a word not just a head nod not just deep quiet internal thoughts and if you get within a 6 foot radius of him you suddenly get healed none of that comic caricature but a word a simple command so that those who hear the commands will come away recognizing his authority. And why does he want that? Because he heals men to draw men to himself. He is not just giving healing. He is giving himself to be their God, and they have not received him as God until they confess him as God, Lord of heaven and earth. So he says the word, in the exorcisms, the word and the healings so that they would come to know who he is so that once their bodies are healed, more than their bodies would be healed, their spirit would be healed, evidenced by their continued obedience to the authority of his word. In verse 16, we have a different lesson as well. And it's really a lesson on the priority of doing public good, isn't it? Jesus does not retire into a peaceful private evening on a Saturday night, sipping his old fashioned alone on the front porch. He serves into the night. I'm sure not every Sabbath night was like this, but this was one of the busiest nights recorded in all the Gospels, this text actually says he healed everyone they brought to him. He serves the public good. Charles Spurgeon, in his book Lectures to My Students, said something that resonates quite well with our Lord's indefatigable love. Listen to what Spurgeon said. It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. We are to spend and to be spent, not to lay ourselves up in lavender and nurse our flesh. Such soul travail as that of a faithful minister will bring on occasional seasons of exhaustion when both heart and flesh will fail. Where does he get such an idea? I don't find modern day pastoral care books saying such a thing. He learns this from our Lord. It's okay. It's even godly to let the needs of others impinge upon your life. Beloved, what if you what if you gained more strength, joy, peace, happiness? from having to serve others in the name of Jesus Christ than actually guarding your peace, your joy, your happiness, always managing it and making sure that n- nobody got too much of you. What if your real health is in giving yourself away? That's another lesson to be taking from verse 16. <clears throat> now lastly, I want to look at verse 17. Let's read it again. Our Lord has performed these wonderful exorcisms and healings. Verse 17 reads, In order that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled, who said, He himself took away our sicknesses and carried away our diseases. This is a remarkable scripture. Here in verse 17 we have a very strange occurrence. Matthew is telling us that Isaiah 53.4 has something to do with the healings, the healing of the body of Peter's mother-in-law and of these crowds that came. And what's strange about that is because in the other New Testament scriptures, Isaiah 53.4 three four. Its Christological focus, which means its focus upon the person and work of Christ, when it is used in the New Testament, this Isaiah 53-4 is ordinarily pointing to Christ's ministry of sin-bearing. But here Matthew brings in Isaiah 53-4 to say that it illuminates and fulfills the healing ministry of Christ. What should we make of it? Two lessons. Number one, by bringing 53 4 in here, Matthew is wanting us to see that our Lord is fulfilling Scripture purposefully. Notice the in order that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. Jesus consciously is fulfilling Old Testament prophetic scriptures. It is not just a coincidence that the life of Jesus lines up with some things we can find in the Old Testament. That's not how this works. Rather, verse 17 is proving that Jesus had come to carry out God's will to save us, which had been determined long beforehand and foretold by the prophets. And so he's doing the very things that the Lord made sure the prophets would say he would do. And so now he's doing them. So everybody would say he's doing what the prophets said he would do. But there's another thing to take here, another lesson. Christ was not healing the sick According to the use of Isaiah 53, 4 here by Matthew, Christ was not healing the sick only from the position of a divine physician. Stay with me. Verse 17 confirms to us that all the physical miracles Christ performed, he performed because he was willing to be the suffering servant of Yahweh. His willingness, his readiness to bear the sins of his people is actually being proved in the healings and the exorcisms. That's the point that Matthew is making. John Chrysostom, wonderful church father, one of Calvin's favorites, said, The sum of all diseases, even death itself, has its root and foundation in sin, which Jesus was forgiving. Matthew sees the connection that all sickness, all disease, all, of course, demon possession, all of it has its root and foundation in man's sin. And this is why Isaiah 53, 4, he took away our sicknesses, carried away our diseases, is the scripture being fulfilled in these healings. He is showing that he is going to take away the sin that has put man under this curse in the first place. And he's going to take it away on the cross. And having taken away our sin, he's going to heal us utterly. For when he is raised and becomes life-giving spirit, he is going to then raise us up, our mortal flesh, in glory, and give us eternal life in the body and the soul so our Lord Jesus heals in the way he does so as not to separate his person and work as Savior from the needs of his people they do not just need to be healed in their body they need someone who will carry away sin's curse which is now arranged against them and he will carry it away let's pray our gracious God We pray that we would indeed, contrary to our readiness, even our perhaps willingness, that we would benefit from having heard your word tonight. Father, if there are any among us who are truly, truly sick, if there are any among us who are still dead in their sin, and they have no love for your word, If there are any among us, Father, who are truly still under the service of the devil and languishing under his power, our prayer for them is that you would come to them and heal them as you have come and healed us believers. Father, we have learned from your word that it is often the case that many who need your healing are are members of the covenant. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, who has all power and authority over everything that binds us, every weight of the curse that crushes us, that he would please heal, please save, please open the ear, circumcise the heart, make Christ crucified glorious to the sinner, bring them out from under the slavery that they are in. Father, we pray also that we would all truly give our hearts to the things that we have learned and cons- as it concerns the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not fear anything that occurs to our bodies, that we would not even fear the grave or death, that we would not fear the terrible news from a doctor or or a sudden trouble that comes upon us from an accident or injury, that we would not fear anything, knowing that you are Lord of our bodies, and that if we can best render service to you in dying, that we, Lord, would even have the joy of rendering such service. That if we best render service to you in going on to live, that we would indeed rise up like Peter's mother-in-law and serve you in life. And Father, lastly, I pray tonight for your church that we would indeed not turn away from the ordinary vocations of home, that we would render service to Christ there and recognize that we have been healed to serve there, especially healed in unbelief, healed from our guilt, healed from our corruption. Lord, may we indeed serve in true righteousness and holiness by faith and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.